are listening to Heart of the Ark podcast from the Office for Evangelization in the Archdiocese of Newark. We're coming to you to bring knowledge and some courage as we voyage through this life as missionary disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Jennifer Benke, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with my friend and colleague, Father John Gordon. You know, we see each other all the time. We work together. And yet doing this is somehow kind of like wonderful and funny and odd at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, We have these conversations all the time. And now we're having a conversation knowing that hopefully many other people will be eavesdropping in on and will be a blessing for them. The same thing occurred to me yesterday while we were doing the rosary devotion here at the Archdiocese Pastoral Center, that we work together when we have these conversations together every day. And yet there are very few times that you and I do the liturgy together. And so that was a really, that was a blessing to me as well. We got to see each other kind of in our natural habitat. Well, let me say something about that, if I may, because dear friends, dear listeners, uh, Jennifer, as you may recall from the previous podcast, has a background in opera and singing. And so she was asked to sing the Ave Maria, not to lead us in singing it, but to do it as a solo. Dear friends, it was overwhelmingly magnificent. It echoed through the building and it was really awe-inspiring. No one clapped because it was just we were just caught up in the moment. I was tempted to say that's how we begin every morning at the Office for Evangelization. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but it was too sacred a moment to kind of put in that little banal kind of thing. But with that, we did begin every day that way. Well, that's right. And we can move toward it. Yes. And some people came to me afterward and, and said some nice things. And I said, well, that's why I'm in evangelization. I'm crazy and I have a loud voice. So just like John the Baptist. Exactly right. A couple grasshoppers <laughs> and I'm all good to go. So this morning we are going to talk about the ritualization of of prayer, of liturgy, of life, and what that means to us as Christians, as Catholics, and how it helps us process the world that we live in. My experience, as Father John said, is a musician, and I've been working in liturgy since I was 13, in in a way. And obviously, that's where you've spent a lot of time as well. Let's have a conversation about ritual and how those can be opportunities for evangelization and how we can bring people to understand that in God, we live and move and have our being in him and in these expressions of community that we find our deeper meaning of how to process the world. That's great. You know, and I'm thinking of the time of the year that we're at right now. Here we are in mid-October. I don't know when people will be listening to this, but November is often considered the month of praying for the deceased. We begin with All Saints Day and All Souls Day. And that's an area of tremendous ritual that humankind has always done. And yet at the same time, there seems to be a certain de-ritualization that's going on about certain key areas of death. So many families now no longer have a funeral mass. There's a maybe a wake, but there's a burial and a repast. And certain things, I, I know so many families have told me that they feel something is missing. They wish something else had happened that they were familiar with for death that didn't happen. And I'm wondering if that's a place to start some of this conversation about ritual. I absolutely think so. There is some research about how the changes because of COVID and how many people passed and how even after they did pass, that either we weren't there as friends and family members to hold their hands as they departed. And we then were kept away from the public act of mourning and of being community at these times that really we need the community the most. 
I remember one family, they lost the mother. So she was like the grandmother matriarch and her son could not be with her when she died. It was in the height of COVID, the earliest, earlier days when they were still so much fear about it. The funeral, we're not allowed to have a funeral mass. At that point, the churches were still on lockdown. Only the undertaker himself and, and myself were allowed to go to the cemetery. So it was a very challenging time. And one of the things that they just commented to me very recently, which I hadn't even thought about, was we still didn't do kind of a special mass just for her. Other things went on. And and so I think we're going to plan that because there's still a desire to mark this loss, even though now it's a couple of several years ago, there's still a certain sense of incompleteness with how this ended. And that was covid Right. But there's other ways in which families are just not paying attention or the lack of faith or an awareness of the transcendent or the focus is on the immediate and not so much on eternal life that we also have these deritualization realities, it seems to me. And sometimes we think about ritual and we put it on a very high level of absolutely in the Catholic Church, right? Like that's that's what we kind of high church, kind of high church. <laughs> but we also have rituals. We have everyday habits. We have things that we do every morning. I'm, I'm reading this book that a dear friend of mine sent me, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Mm. And it talks about, you know, ritual from the perspective of making your bed every day. You know, it's a ritual that you do. It doesn't really... Like, you're going to get in and mess it up later anyway. Like, why do we do these things? It's funny you mentioned that particular one. I think there was some general or admiral speaking at the graduation of one of the military academies. And basically told the uh, the newly uh, committed ones, make your bed every day. It sets a tone of discipline, of commitment, of completing a job. And and it was very interesting because so many people, you know, just probably don't make their bed because oh, I'm going to get, I'll be getting in in a few hours, you know, and, but I think you're right. People often speak of having their morning routine. And we you know when we travel or you're with somebody else and that morning routine is upset a little bit. I was just talking to some friends last night, you know, this one fella's deciding he's going to start to wean off coffee a little bit because on the retreat he was on recently, breakfast was after mass. So mass was first thing in the morning and then there was breakfast. And he was like, oh my gosh, he was having a headache. He was longing for that coffee before mass and he didn't like how his body was so craving it. So he's now he's trying to wean off it and it's like he's doing it very slowly. But the realization was that that routine wasn't just comfortable, but it becomes almost essential. It becomes part of how we establish things to the point of he was craving it. So routines, rituals are very important for ordinary and for extraordinary things, it seems to me. Obviously, there's liturgy every day, right? You can look it up on massfinder.com or something like that. I don't know. There's something. But definitely on the Archdiocese's website, you can find where the masses are. But there's also these times, as we spoke about funerals and moments of prayer, like yesterday for the rosary, that are sort of set apart. And the way that those affect us at these times really has a, a sociological through all times and all histories, the, every culture has rituals. Every culture has these uh, times where they bury their dead. That's that's how we know. That's how we know it's a human civilization rather than just a mass death of cows. One of the ways that, that anthropologists tell us that they know this is a human 
settlement here, however many hundreds, thousands, even million years of years ago, is because there was burial of the dead as opposed to just we leave the dead where they were. Right. And, and it seems to me, too, that the challenge with ritual, especially thinking about funerals again and death as we're approaching the month of November, that the rituals that used to be so present to us, either because of COVID or family situations, people have moved away. People are no longer able to get to grandma's wake or funeral because they don't have the time to get there. We need to create other rituals that will help us mark very significant. It's one thing about marking ordinary things, like the morning routine, but that's minor. It's good to do and it's helpful, but what's really important is that we mark and ritualize significant key aspects in people's lives. And as a culture, we've been cut loose from that in a helpful way. Back in the day, for example, in our culture, when there was the the military was more predominant and there was a draft, for example, it was a mark for a young man becoming a man. He did his time in the military. That was like a ritual. Uh, Other cultures have ritualization ceremonies for boys becoming men. But in our American culture, it was the military. With that no longer is a predominant reality, what is the ritual for boys becoming men? Because they keep elongating boyhood. Now it's it's college. College and his graduate school and putting off marriage and having children. And so those are the kinds of things that they're not just rituals, but they also mark really decisive realities in our life. And it seems to me as if the family, besides the culture being a place of ritual creating and celebrating, the family and the individual with our morning routine, but the family can be a place that creates ritual, so to speak. I know with my own kids, setting a routine for when they come home from school and making sure that they have a snack real fast and then they get to their homework when they were very young has carried them through to create good habits of study now. But at the same time, there are certain things that we do during the year. First day of school, we have pictures on the front porch and the last day of school is usually we get lunches and we go to one specific place. When they were little, we called it the Princess Castle, but it's really just a conservatory garden that has a really nice building next door. And we'll eat outside and have a picnic like the end of the school year is done. And then obviously as a, as a larger culture, we ritualize things that are not sacred all the time, like sporting events or, or graduations or these sorts of things. Sure. And I think that it's important, forgive me for keep getting back to this only just because part of our earlier conversations and how my mind has been working and wanting to encourage our listeners some ideas about how to create ritual, certainly, for example, around death. And then you might find other ways in other environments as well. But for example, having an opportunity to just as a family sit around and pray for the person who passed away. If there's no wake and no wake prayers and no funeral mass, how can you just get together, pray the rosary? It doesn't have to be anything difficult or challenging or formal. It's not something that a priest or a deacon has to come in and do. Anybody can do this. You can do this on your own. You can do this with the family. Light a candle, have a picture of the person who passed away, perhaps. Use the opportunity to tell stories about that person, especially stories that reflect the qualities of their character that you want to pass on to children and grandchildren. Those are just some of the ways in which we can begin to mark that. I know that people will sometimes go to the cemetery uh, on a regular basis, maybe weekly or early on, and then on the anniversary of the death or All Souls Day or Mother's Day and those kinds of kinds of moments in which we acknowledge that we're part of a, a continuum of life. We don't just exist in a vacuum. And that's part of the reality of these rituals. They connect us. They transcend the moment. 
So we're not just about the here and now, but about the hereafter and all that that implies both in terms of where we come from and where we're going. And I just think that that is really helpful and important for people to to be able to do it, not just to feel adrift when these things are no longer present. The rosary is a perfect example. Also, again, in this Liturgy of the Ordinary book, I was reading that the importance of call and response prayer. And so the rosary is so easily adapted as a one leader and somebody responding. It's in that ability to dialogue, not just with God. C.S. Lewis says we don't pray to God to change God. We pray to God to change ourselves. But not just prayer to God. We try to offer all to God, but also to pray with each other to reassure each other. And that's really an important part of the community and the ritual around, especially these momentous life experiences. That's an excellent insight that the rosary does that call and response that ritual works best when it's not done in isolation by oneself. Yet so many people are in isolation. They are by themselves. They live far from their family. They've had to move because of work or other circumstances or commitments or the family has moved away from them. And so they're is an isolating aspect of it. So it's helpful to find somebody that you can do this with. And that's where, ironically, things like Zoom and social media and podcasts and the like (laughs) can be helpful because we can even just kind of have a conversation with you. Let me just tell you about my grandson who just had his confirmation. I couldn't go to it, but I want to tell you how proud I am of him. And just to find somebody to do that call response kind of thing, because if it's just in isolation by ourselves, it's not ritual. No. It's begins to the border on the schizophrenic, maybe. (laughs) Don't we agree? Yes, we agree. (laughs) But when we uh, involve another person, well, first of all, we're engaged. We're engaged. We're not just doing this by ourselves. And it hints that the engagement is more than just the two people. Like right now, we're very we're very aware that we're not just having a private conversation. Yes. We're very aware that we're having a conversation that we hope other people are going to listen to and be blessed by. What do you mean? I walk around with these <laughs> headphones on my head all the time. And the microphone in front of yes, you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she does. She really does. No, she does. And my opera voice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that having that at least another person is really, really key. And that's helpful for our lives, dear friends, that if, in fact, you're in an environment where you don't have the ability for that, where you do live in some isolation because of either health reasons or work reasons or whatever reasons they might be, somehow to connect beyond ourselves is so helpful, if not important, for life, never mind for ritualizing things. I think it's just very important that we realize we're, we're made for communion, communion with God uh, primarily and ultimately, but that communion with God begins to be expressed by the communion with other people. That's something that runs so counter to a culture, our culture, American culture, that is so invested in the individualistic experience of life, right? The rugged individualism, but also the only thing that matters to me is my feelings. They don't affect other people, right? So when we open ourselves up to these these experiences of faith sharing or just a deep conversation where we're vulnerable with one another, it's such a profound experience of accompaniment and also awareness that we're not in it alone. We're not left in despair alone. And that's something that brings me back to the the idea that, you know, Jesus didn't leave us alone on the cross. He gave us his mother 
the whole world's his mother, and she's the model for this eternal maternity or paternity. We can always be that person to listen and to to show up for each other. In other words, we're hatched. All of us were born and into a family that we were cared for and nurtured because, you know, when a horse is born, it can start running fairly right away. We can't handle life until we're about 30, never mind as, as an infant or a newborn. But you're touching on something that is probably the topic of another podcast or conversation down the road. And that is the great divide between our culture and our faith. Our culture, even our legal culture, has enshrined that the individual is the uh, basic level of human society is the individual. That's not our Catholic faith tradition. The family is the fundamental unit of society as opposed to the individual. But because of that, if it's individual versus family, that's why we have the kinds of crazy things that we have because these are things that it's all about my individual right because I am the fundamental unit. But if the family is the fundamental unit, it involves commitment, cooperation, love, thinking of the other before ourselves. That's another topic. But I think, therefore, that's all the more reason, dear listeners, to not allow ourselves. If we're alone, that's one thing. Living alone, being but let's not be isolated, dear friends. Do whatever we can, do whatever you can to move out of isolation into community from the culture of death as saint john paul ii describes our western culture to a culture of life which is the gospel i had this opportunity very recently to speak with someone and she's an elderly woman she's looking for kind of a purpose she never had children of her own she was always a great aunt and cousin and and sister and everything but she's trying to find out what's going to keep her going she's living an isolated life and so finding opportunities i was thinking i know of a young family in the same community who is here without any former relatives so there's no grandparents there's no and both parents have to work And there's no one to help just watch the kids or, you know, we need like a rent a grandma program for them. (laughs) Can I set them up on a date of like, is this going to work for these two people? And can I find a way that Pope Francis just spoke about the gift of the elderly to teach the new generations how to pray? Yes. And so giving meaning to someone who been through a life journey to have an effect and come out of that isolation and then to find a purpose in not only helping with the bodily and physical and time management needs of a family, but also enable them to pass on the faith in a way. It's just, I'm trying to, trying to, figure out how to make this all work. There's also a language barrier, but I think it could be a good thing. It's The thing too about that is when we reach out to kind of create that community, as it were, it involves a certain sense of vulnerability. You know, the family, one of the the definitions that sometimes goes around the room, and family is the people that have to take you in, whether (laughs) they want to or not. Like you're part of the, you have a place at the table just because you're part of the family. So if we don't have that family, rather we have to create one, it involves vulnerability. It involves putting yourself out there in a way that might not be received or reciprocated. And that can be frightening. And that can be a reason where if you've done that and it's been not reciprocated or rejected, you're all the more reluctant to put yourself out there. It's much safer. I don't get hurt and the like. But it can also make us bitter. It can make us sad. It can make us very 
inward gazing and in a way that's not helpful. And so I want to encourage us to be vulnerable because the Lord God has a solution. And that would be the other piece of it, that if you are in a situation of isolation, pray, beg the Lord to bring to you or you to go to the people that you can create family with, create some sense of, of sharing with. It might just be a coworker. It might be somebody you sit with, you sit near at church, you know, and it would involve, you know, saying to a young couple with two or three kids, hey, can I take you all out to breakfast after mass today? Little things like that, that just begin to show that you're interested in sharing yourself a little bit. And those are hard things to do. And we kind of seem to have gotten a little far afield from the initial concept of ritualization. But these are necessary steps of being able to identify what are important things in life so that when these moments are able to be marked, we have an environment in which they can be marked well. There's that opportunity for communion is really the most important part, right? The whole word community comes from the word communion, where we are meant to be in relationship with each other and with God. And I loved how you you spoke about vulnerability. Not only is this the Heart of the Ark podcast, but I have a, a devotion to the Sacred Heart. And it's that wounded, open, bleeding heart of Jesus that calls us all to Him and that He knows right where we are. And then he He pulls us out of our own individual and pulls us back into his body and we're we become part of his body in engaging with one another i think one of the great truths of christianity is that we have a god who suffers with who is compassion suffers with us uh, because suffering is part of the human condition we might not all share a sense of joy a sense of happiness most of us have joy and happiness in our lives but there are some people that do not injustice oppression illness poverty whatever it might be that there's very little light very little joy in their lives but one thing we all have in common is challenge difficulty pain hurt fear whatever it might be and those are things that the lord has also experienced in christ jesus and consequently we are not alone there's our first place of moving out of isolation is in communion with the lord and he's not only just given us himself thanks be to god which would be enough he's given us his mother that would be enough he's given us the saints and the angels so we have all these this community of people are surrounding us that are already calling us to communion with them the angels and the saints it's no mistake that all souls day is preceded by all saints day as we prepare to experience or to acknowledge loss all souls day we begin acknowledging completeness which is all saints day And so there's a way in which we're already wired for that, and God has kind of prepared the way for that. And that's a great place to meet other people, too, in their hurt or their fear, in their pain. And so we uh, volunteer to do things for people who are either poor or uh, whatever it might be or unhealthy. And so there's all sorts of ways in which we can um, make this happen. And going back to what you said before about the ritualization, especially as we think about life and the end of life, I don't want to say death rituals, but mm-hmm. but death rituals. The church, we have a three-parter, right? We have the vigil service, the wake mm-hmm. service, and then we have the funeral mass. And then there's the internment. 
the burial itself. So those three opportunities for engagement with the family to come together at these marking these three really important steps of a transition from bodily life to divine life Mm -hmm. or to eternal life is really it's so healing when you experience all three because in a way it links us right to the the passion the three days of the passion Mm -hmm. but it also links us directly to having to mark these three things and giving us those opportunities to process over time We know time doesn't heal all wounds, but it makes them a little bit more understandable. And on on either end of those three things, there's like trimmings, as you were, as it were. So, for example, in our ritual book for uh, Christian funerals, there's prayers for someone who's preparing to die. There's the gathering of people at the moment of death and praying at the moment of death, even before the vigil, before the wake. There's a way in which the family begins to kind of gather around when death is on the way. We know it's coming uh, for whatever illness or age, whatever it might be. People start to gather. People start to be attentive to it. We tend to uh, focus on the persons who are caregivers or the primary mourners, the spouse or children of that person, so that we can support them in that. Like even after the interment, there's the repast, which is no small thing in terms of sharing stories and getting to laugh and cry a little bit and. Then even I know in some places and some people, and this might be coming back more and more because people are so far flung from one another, you can't get back in time for a funeral. So they do like a month's mind, you know, like 30 days afterwards have a mass or even just wherever you are. They died in East Jabip and you're living, you know, wherever you are, you can have mass celebrated for that person, have a mass offered and be present there. So there's ways which we kind of add to these Three moments, the vigil or the wake, the funeral mass and the interment with these other kind of pieces that not to linger and to draw and to hold on to it. But I remember talking to many people when they're kind of upset about their mourning, that, that they're still kind of, you know, it's six months, a year, two years, and they're still every so often caught up in it. And I said, but you don't want to get over it. You buried your spouse of so many years. You buried your, your parent. You buried a child, God forbid. You can't get over it. You don't want to get over it. You don't want it to paralyze you. But it's like there's a wound there, being the sacred heart. There's a wound there. And and Jesus, even his resurrected state, maintained the wound. So we wear them, I won't say with pride, but with the reality of this is okay. This is okay. Someone in my own life, when I was struggling with getting through a situation, said, you know, the grief is the badge of love. It's really, it's the thing we wear that proves how much we loved and lost. That's really a beautiful way of understanding it. And to get back to what you said, obviously, yesterday I sang the Ave Maria. It's not the first time I've sung the Ave Maria. No, I noticed. (laughs) Right. So in the past year, I've done almost more memorial masses as a year later or the marking an anniversary, or a birthday, like marking the the birthday of the person who had passed in COVID at a, a mass, or even last night, we had pizza, and it was the birthday of someone who had passed, and it just happened to be right after we prayed the rosary, you know, but it was like, we do these things, we took a picture of everybody who prayed the rosary and said, you know, happy birthday in heaven, you yes. know, so these memorials of, of these people that are with us, and they're still praying for us, and they're still interceding for us, and they call us I really don't think that anybody who's in heaven wants us to disengage on their behalf. 
They and want the, us to engage with like, each other. In addition to kind of creating ritual when there's been so much deritualization about sacred things like death, I think there are also some significant events in people's lives that are not sacralized, so to speak. That is to say, they're ritualized, but they're not sacred ritual. Think of birthdays, for example. When I was growing up, on your birthday, when you came down to breakfast, the presents were already at your table, at your place at the table, and you got to choose the menu uh, for dinner that evening, that type of deal. So, But there was nothing spiritual about it. There was nothing sacred about it. Now I relate to a whole bunch of people that we honor the baptism day as much as, if not more, than the birthday. So the group of people that I hang around with, we all know our baptism day, not just our birthday, but we know our baptism day. I know mine. You know yours. Excellent. Yeah. And and we honor people on that day. There's a way in which we sort of bring the sacred into that moment so that we mark life and the, the passing of time in a way that both encourages the person in terms of their own desire to be more like Christ, as well as honoring them for how they already are. And those are just wonderful things in which we we mark normal, everyday things. If you go to a Catholic school, for example, graduation, besides having a prayer at it, it usually begins with a baccalaureate-style mass the night before. You know, there's a way in which these are holy. Marriage, of course, uh, when people get married at the church, there's obviously the sacralization of that. Uh, So many people now either uh, don't get married in church or they're living together. And besides the general harm that is, it also makes it very difficult to to beg the Lord's blessing about the daily things of life when the foundation doesn't call upon him. So again, dear listeners, I invite you that even if you're in a situation where you can't make that happen because of the other person, you can begin to make holy the various ordinary things of life. So include prayer in the morning routine, not just making the bed and getting the coffee. Even if it's just a simple prayer, the morning offering, something simple to begin to not just bring ritual, but to bring sacredness into everyday, normal, ordinary, as well as to the extraordinary significant. Amen. Okay, so I guess uh, we've gone a lot. We've covered a lot. So I guess just in in summary here, Father, I'd like to just invite people not only to engage with each other, but also to not stay in isolation, especially in these moments of of suffering and grief, that those are such important moments to really feel wrapped up in the mantle of God's love, but also to allow others to love you. I think, too, that um, I want to encourage our listeners to realize that we already have a lot of ritual in our lives, both from the wider environment that we're in, but also personalized or family-oriented, and to create ritual where it's lacking and where it's necessary, both in ordinary and extraordinary things, and that we need other people to do that, and it's there, you know, to, to not be afraid. The Lord is all about this. The Lord is all about this, dear friends. Amen. So in conclusion, I thought, since I mentioned the Sacred Heart, and we're heading into November, the month of the Holy Souls in Purgatory, that I'd close with the two, the petition to the Sacred Heart and the prayer for souls in Purgatory. Awesome. Thank you. Do that. Thank you very much. Oh, Sacred Heart of Jesus, I have asked you for many favors, but I plead for this one. Take it, place it in your open, broken heart, and when the Eternal Father sees it covered with the mantle of your most precious blood, he will not refuse it. 
It is not my prayer, but yours. O sacred heart of Jesus, I place all my trust in you. O divine heart of Jesus, grant we beseech you eternal rest to the souls in purgatory, the final grace to those who shall die today, true repentance to sinners, the light of faith to pagans, and your blessing to me and mine. Amen. And may Almighty God bless us all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends, for listening to Heart of the Ark podcast. Thank you, Father. Heart of the Ark podcast is an initiative by the Office for Evangelization at the Archdiocese of Newark. If you want to find us online, you can find us at rcan.org slash evangelization. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Very soon we'll be updating our social media for the Heart of the Ark, but you can find us on Fireside Podcasts at Heart of the Ark dot fireside dot fm our theme song is composed by and orchestrated by eric hunter a dear friend of mine you can find out more about eric and his performances and compositions at eric e-r-i-c hunter h-u-n-t-e-r music.com this has been a pleasure and i look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you in the future